All right, let's do a quick review, and then we will see how far we can get. All right, this morning, we looked at the fact that judgment is a Bible doctrine. We looked at the Old Testament. We looked at the New Testament, and we looked at the creeds, and all agree that judgment will occur. Everybody remember that? Then we looked on this question, what is the basis for this judgment? We looked at Matthew 25, 34 to 42, Matthew 16, 27, Ecclesiastes 12, 14, John 5, 28 to 29, Romans chapter 2, verse 6, Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 13. And what did we discover the basis for judgment is in the Bible? Works. Okay, right? No question about it. That's, that's the basis for judgment. All right? So, we then looked at... And another teaching in the Bible, we looked at John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, John chapter 5, verse 24, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, which seems to teach that salvation is by faith. Well, if it's by faith, and if we add the word alone and grace alone, then why are we be judged according to our works? The basis of our judgment should be whether we have faith, not based on what we have done, all right? And that's how it's often explained in the evangelical world. Remember, I give you the example that's often used in evangelism. If you were to die tonight and stand before God, and if he was to ask you, why should he let you into your heaven? What are you to say? And then they demonstrate that all your answers are wrong unless you say, because of Christ, right? Well, wait a minute. If the basis of my judgment is works, then that whole that whole scenario falls apart, right? So, so what exactly, um, how do we answer this? So this is what we have. Remember the phrase? I gave everyone a phrase to remember. Justified by faith, judged according to works. Those are two truths that seem to be found in Scripture, and we have to work to try to reconcile it. So we did a little survey of modern history. We did not go back to the church fathers, because we probably would not like the answers that we would find in the church fathers. So we started with Luther, all right? And when we looked at Luther, what was his answer in trying to reconcile this problem? Yeah, remember the big circle he took. You're justified by faith alone. However, works is evidence. Well, ju- justify that. But you don't need works. However, if you don't have works, then you should fear. And if someone does make it to judgment with no works, they need to be told they need to have faith. But he seemed to indicate that wouldn't be possibly enough. Right? Basically, it was the most convoluted answer that you could come up with because I think he realized the difficulty. And remember, Luther found himself in a very difficult situation, right? He had rejected the Catholic view, and as soon as he rejected the Catholic view, the antinomians started running around, and he, started, he wanted to reject the antinomians, so the antinomians were wrong, the Catholics were wrong, and Luther's answer was a little bit hard to follow. Then we jumped from Luther to what? The new perspective view, new perspectivism, all right? And what what did we learn about the new perspectivism? When when did it start? What book really is the the, the major book that creates the whole movement? Paul and Palestinian Judaism, published when? 1977. And after that book was done, all kinds of things started being published, 
Um, and the reason the, these issues were coming up is people were trying to understand, wait a minute, the Bible says we're just according to works, but it seems to say we're justified by faith. How do we reconcile this? So people said we have to study Paul. And that's what occurred. All these things were being written, and we get the new perspectivism. And what was one of the major things that came out of the new perspectivism view? What was one of the major things that came out of this view? Basically, they said that Judaism was not a workspace system. Therefore, when we read Romans... And we read Galatians, where it seems that Paul is arguing against people who want a works-based system, that we are not reading Paul correctly. All right? Now, wait a minute. Now, again, remember, this, this is not a Catholic issue. New perspectivism arose from where? The evangelical world. Okay, make sure we understand that, because people are like, oh, wait, you're getting into Catholicism. It has nothing to do with Catholicism. This is, a, this is happening in the Protestant world, okay? All right? So we talked a lot about that. Then we jump to Piper and N.T. Wright, okay, because they get into a big debate in 2010. Everybody remember that? Okay. Um, let's go back. Um, what, was, what was the big if issue between Wright and Piper? Now, there was a lot of issues, but issues that related to this problem, what was the big fight? Okay. Uh, the, the issue became two words. Bases... Versus evidence. N.T. Wright seemed to be saying that the basis of our salvation is what? Works. Piper wanted to argue, no, it's evidence. However, you have to have them. And if you don't have them, you're not saved, which would make them the basis. <laughs> Right? So, so they went back and forth, they went back and forth. And in 2010 was the big year. It was supposed to happen. The showdown was supposed to occur, right? They were going to meet. Where were they going to meet at? 2010 Evangelical Theological Society's annual meeting in Atlanta. But what happened? Piper couldn't make it. So who stepped into his place? Tom Schreiner, Schreiner, right? Uh, and he wrote uh, part of the four-volume, uh, the four-views book. He's one of the contributors of this book. And what did he call for? He called for a more thoughtful explanation on the issue. Right? And this is what he said. I think that what Wright says about justification by works, or judgment according to works, could be explained in a more satisfactory way, since he occasionally describes good works as the final basis of justification. On the other hand, Wright reminds us, now this, now please note, this is the guy that takes Piper's place. So he's like, okay... Wright's, maybe Wright's trying to say what we're saying, but he, he seems to be making it clear that works is the final basis of justification. But on the other hand, he goes on to say, Wright did a good thing. And what was the good thing he said Wright did? He reminded everyone of an often ignore, that's something that's often ignored in the evangelical world, which is Paul does teach that good works are necessary for justification. That's kind of a shocking statement. Wait a minute. Why would Piper's side be arguing that Paul does teach that good works are necessary for justification and for salvation? Now, typically, we argue they're not necessary. So are they necessary? They're not necessary. What are these two saying? All right. 
Um, and Wright rightly says that these texts are not just about rewards. Okay, well, okay, so, so what, what's, this is even more confusing. Remember we talked about the difference in the InterVarsity Press Bible Dictionary, the 92-93 uh, edition versus, I think, what, the 90... 97 edition, and how they changed their view on the subject. I mean, there was all kinds of people trying to figure this stuff out. And everybody was like, uh, what's going on? This, I talked about it on the News and Focus program a million times. There were blogs written about it. It was chaos everywhere. Everyone was arguing about this because no one really... Wait, is it the basis or is it evidence? Well, if it's evidence is needed, then it's the basis. So if I just don't use the word basis, I'm not in the new perspectivism movement. I'm in Piper's movement. But Piper seems to be saying what Wright is saying. I don't understand it. Oh, and by the way, I have to learn how to reinterpret Romans and Galatians because we've read it wrong since Luther. I mean, that's a lot to try to uh, deal with. And most Christians just said, who cares? All right. Now, not some. Now, some, because remember, I wrote an email to a church in Abilene, and that didn't go so well when I asked them if they believed in new perspectivism, and they got really mad. Right? But clearly, it seemed that someone there was being influenced by it. All right, let's continue. Wright helpfully clarified that justification is, an, is anchored firmly and squarely in Jesus the Messiah, the crucified and risen Lord, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. More specifically, when I... When I, says Wright, have spoken of bases, I have not at all meant by that to suggest that this is an independent basis from the finished work of Christ and the powerful work of the Spirit, but that within that solid and utterly of grace structure, the practical evidence offered on the last day will be the tenor and direction of the life that has been lived. All right, so... Wright tried to back up a little bit and say, well, I'm not saying it's the soul basis. It's not the soul basis. You still have to have Jesus. You still have to have his finished work. You still have to have grace. And you still have to have works. Right? Okay. The future justification then will be in accordance with the life lived But the glorious conclusion of Romans chapter 8 makes it clear that that this is no ground for anxiety. If God is for us, who can be against us? So So they're arguing, wait a minute, even though works may be part of it, we shouldn't be worried about it. Okay, wait a minute. So I'm, should, should I be worried about it? Like, this is just one big, I don't even know where to unpack all of this. Um, they continue, this is looking to the future, trusting that Jesus who died, who rose, who now intercedes for us, will remain at the heart of the unbreakable bond of love with which God has loved us. Thus, the final future justification then is as assured for all who are in the Messiah, uh, then it's assured for all those who are in the Messiah. As a result, this future justification though will be in accordance with the life lived is not for that reason in any way putting in jeopardy the present verdict over faith and faith alone. All that I have said looks back to the finished work of the Messiah. That's all right trying to, trying to explain it. Right? He, he's trying to back up, but he, he won't just come out and say because he understands there's a tension here. So Piper's side responded, I am delighted that Wright now speaks of the final judgment as one that will be in accordance with our works instead of on the basis of our works. 
All right, so now, what are the two words? Bases in accordance, not now bases in evidence. Now, I don't know what in accordance, how that differs from bases, but okay. All right. This is playing a lot of very word games. Like, no one will just come out and say, okay, if it's in accordance to works, how many works are necessary? And what works? Right. Okay, so let's continue. I think this adjustment and clarification is exactly right. I am full agreement with this formulation. We are judged according to our works, but not on the basis of our works. All right, so now we have an agreement. We are judged according to our works, not on the basis of our works. Now, I will argue that while these theologians come to an agreement, the average church member will not agree with that. If I say you're judged according to your works, most of you will say, no, I'm not. I'm going to be judged based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now you're disagreeing even with some of the major evangelicals on the subject. But guess what? Do they have any power? This is back to the whole issue of authority, right? Who cares what they say? Who cares that they've studied this for 20 years? They're all wrong. I figured it out because I went to church for a long time and read a Bible once. But wait... Do you think that stopped the controversy? No, N.T. Wright had to respond. (laughs) He writes, Don't get too excited. I haven't retracted anything that I meant in my many, many early statements on the subject. Because everyone was like, oh, Wright agrees. And he's like, whoa, slow down, slow down, slow down. Well, wait a minute. Now, they can't even just come out and say what they think. He goes, how could I, Uh, since I was simply stating what Paul states rather than trying to squash him into a dogmatic framework? He's like, how can I recant of what I said? I'm simply dealing with what Paul said. Does Paul say we're judged according to works? Yes. Does he say we're justified by faith? Yes. The two have to work together. All right. Clearly, I did say basis. But I've always made it clear that I did not mean or intend the kind of thing that clearly some theologians think that word must mean. Since the word basis is not itself a biblical word, I'm not claiming any great status for it. Now, uh-oh. Now, okay. You have to understand the humor of what we just read here. If we're going to go scripture alone, then we can only define doctrines by Scripture, which would destroy the doctrine of the Trinity and the hypostatic union and about a thousand of other doctrines because we don't have literally those words used in Scripture. (laughs) So do you define these doctrines by Scripture alone or how do you define these doctrines? You see why I connected this with the Sola Scriptura problem? These are connected. He goes, obviously people have read it without reading the other things I say and then jump to conclusions which are not warranted by the fuller exposition I give. Let me say it again. Now here's N.T. Wright trying to make it as clear as he can. All I'm saying is what Paul says in Romans 2 and elsewhere. Our own technical terms, bases, are fluid and flexible in our discourse and like all summary terms, need to be teased out in terms of larger discourse. Paul's and mine. So he's like, okay, 
you, you know, we, we can get into this. Our, uh, when we use these technical terms to try to explain it, those can be fluid and flexible. Well, if they can be fluid and flexible, we're never going to have it nailed down. The point, again, is that by the Spirit, those who are already justified by faith have their lives transformed, and the final verdict will be in accordance with that transformation, imperfect though it remains. Simply put, you're justified by faith, But what's the final verdict going to be based on? Your works. I'm almost making an argument for what? Two justifications. Which is Catholic. Exactly. So even the evangelicals, when they try to reconcile this, end up with a problem. Okay, so all of that said, remember what the book said early on? There has been no consensus on this problem ever. All right. So this book is going to provide how many views? Four. I'm not going to go through all the people committed to these views. We're going to jump into view number one. Are you ready? View number one. Now you know everything about the new perspectivism. You know about everything that happened between uh, Piper and Wright, and you didn't have to read a book. Aren't you glad? Of course, that's a very horrible summary of the problems, but that's okay. If you read the book, if you read the two books or multiple books that N.T. Wright wrote and to read the books that Piper wrote in response to N.T. Wright, I'm telling you, you'd be so lost, you wouldn't even know what day it was, okay? Because you're like, what is going on? What? I don't even, I don't even understand justification anymore, and I don't even understand how to read Romans or Galatians. And that's what caused a lot of major confusion, all right? Okay, here we go. Here's view number one. Everybody ready for it? Christians will be judged according to their works at the rewards judgment, but not at the final judgment. Christians will be judged according to their works at the rewards judgment, but not at the final judgment. All right, here's view number one. Everybody got this down? Everybody have this? All right. What are some presuppositions before we even get started with this view that are necessary for this view to work? You've got to have more than one judgment. Do all Christians agree on this? Okay. Here's the thing. Whenever I say, do Christians agree on this, you can always say no and you'll always be right. Okay. I hate that fact, but it's true. Okay. All right. So that's, there's already a presupposition built into this. Now, I will be honest, this view, there's a part of me that likes this view because it really can try to answer some of the problems. The only problem is there's some issues that we have to try to go, wait a minute, that doesn't quite work. But it may be the only view, I don't think any view is going to work out perfectly, right? But... This one has at least some potential, but we'll see if it falls apart. What we're going to do is we're going to let the book, we're going to let someone who believes in this view try to prove this view to us. We're going to try to be open, fair, but we're going to be critical and think it through. Now, we've got to look it through it a couple. What, what's going to be some of the, what's the criteria we need to use in, uh, in uh, judging these views? 
Now, one, we're obviously, we are obviously making a claim that we have the authority to do so, obviously. It goes back to the whole Sola Scriptura problem, okay? But, so we're claiming we have the authority, um, but what's some of the things we, what's some of the criteria we need to use? Okay, well, we have, there we go, okay? Does it hold up to the whole totality of Scripture on the issue, right? Does it, prioritize one view, like one, one thing over another? Um, is it logically consistent? We have to take the argument to its logical conclusion. Some of those basic ideas. Everybody get that? All right, here we go. You ready? Thinking caps on? Yes? All right. It begins like this. Calls for Christians to preserve occur throughout the New Testament. All right. Everybody get that? All right. Calls to preserve uh, for Christians. Now, they give a list of scriptures. All right. At this point, I'm not going to go look at all of them because that will stop us from advancing if we need to come back to it. But they're going to make an argument that throughout the New Testament, there are calls for Christians to persevere till the end. There's verses that seem to say, if you per- those who persevere to the end will be saved. All right. Perseverance. Sometimes within the Reformed world, we call this what? Perseverance of the saints. All right, perseverance of the saints. You, you're, if you're going to be saved, you have to persevere. If you don't persevere, now, we argue you were never saved, but the argument makes what's required. Perseverance is required for your salvation, which then immediately begins to argue against salvation by grace alone through faith alone, because if it's by grace and through faith, why do you need to persevere? The only thing that we need to persevere would be what? Faith. Correct? Now that would argue that faith arrived from me and did not give, was given to me by God. Right. Yeah, well, see, this, right. this would raise all kinds of questions, right? So they, uh, to say that, hey, I have to persevere, it wouldn't even, and I bet you those verses aren't even rega- re- re- focusing on that type of thing, but you get the idea. All right, here we go. They argue... There is no dispute on this point. They would argue there is no dispute on this point that the New Testament tells Christians that they must persevere. Now, I don't know if I agree that there is no dispute on this point because there is a dispute on every point. There is a dispute on every verse. There is a a dispute on every theological position. I'm telling you, if that's the one thing that caused me the most problems, like I said, when, when this is kind of, you know, there's kind of an evolution that occurs. When you're a young Christian, you learn the view and you realize there's different views, but you know you just have, your job is to tell everyone that they're wrong and to do everything in your power to try to correct them. But at some point, you're like, well, man, could we agree on anything? And then you just realize that there's no way to even prove anyone they're wrong because they quote a scripture, you quote a scripture, and both people think they're right. And so then you just become really frustrated with the whole situation. And that frustration begins to cause you to question a lot of things, right? But everyone should realize, unless you don't care to correct anyone. But then you get into, then you're violating Scripture, because what does Scripture tell you to do when it comes to false teaching? Define it, call it out, rebuke it, and condemn it. You don't have the privilege of just like, everyone's right. Let's all just meet up at Shotwell Stadium and have a harvest for souls because we all agree. Okay, Let's just work with the Methodists and work with the Church of Christ. We're all on the same page. Now, that cannot be true. 
That cannot be true. Right now on the church app, I'm doing the thing about uh, the state of Christianity in Abilene, Texas in 2019. I've already posted two sermons from churches in Abilene. I'm going to go through every church and post, you listen to what's going on in the churches in Abilene and come back and tell me how much we all agree. Now, if you're going to tell me they're all right, then guess what? Then there's no truth. So when he says there's no dispute on this point, there's debate on every point. All right, so I don't know, but we'll, we'll continue. The issue is what is at stake. Now, he's saying the issue is, the issue isn't, does the Bible tell you you need to persevere? The issue is what is at stake in regards to perseverance? Many people teach that what is at stake is eternal salvation. Whoa. All right. Some argue what is at stake is, hey, Bobby, if you don't persevere, you're lost. Others will argue that it has nothing to do with salvation. If Bobby doesn't persevere, it's not going to change his salvation. Right? Now, they give us some scriptures to look at. Let's just look at three. We'll go to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 2, verse 22. Everybody there? Or Matthew chapter 10, verse 22. All right. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Now, we could stop right here and have a major, a major hermeneutical argument in how to interpret this. Right? Because who is this referencing? This is, he talks about the mission of the twelve, correct? So is this only a reference to the twelve? If the twelve endure to the end, they would be saved? Or is this for all of us? Only those who endure to the end will be saved? Like, who, how, how do we interpret this? This leads into a whole... Now again, everyone, everyone then will take this and go, well, that applies, that doesn't apply, and it's going to become up to every individual to make their own determination, which just leads me to insanity, but that's okay. Um, he also wants us to look at Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. Verse 13. Everybody there? Go back to verse 11 for some context. And many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. Everybody see that? Now right there, it tells you there's false teachers, so not everyone can be right teachers. Right? All right. Um, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. All right, now that seems to be you have to endure to the end. Now, if we go back to the immediate context, you have to endure what? Not being deceived by false teachers and your love not waxing cold. Have your love ever waxed cold in your Christian life? Does that mean you didn't endure? What does it mean to endure? Right? Go to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Tell me amen when you're there or say amen when you're there. Verse 13, same concept. 
Mark 13, 13. And you shall be hated of all men, uh, all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. All right. He says, for example, concerning, he gives those three verses, Tom Schreiner, remember him? Okay, we talked about him. And uh, he names another man by the name of Ardell uh, Canday, state, Jesus promises salvation, but he conditions the promised salvation on perseverance to the end. Did you hear that? Let's read that again. Jesus promises salvation, but he conditions the promised salvation on what? Perseverance to the end. So, how does this work? Hey, Bobby, you want to be saved? Believe in Jesus. However, comma, you must persevere to the end. If you don't, you're lost. Okay, yeah. Who ju- God will ultimately judge that. In the meantime, I guess you have to figure out how to determine that, but okay. All right. He also tells us to look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Everybody there? 2 Peter chapter 1, start in verse 5. Say amen when you're there. All right. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience goodness, and to uh, goodliness, um, or godliness, I should say, uh, uh, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Right now, they go back to this book and concerning Second Peter chapter one five through eleven, where Peter urges his readers to diligently add godly virtues to their faith, so as to receive a rich welcome into the internal eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Schreiner and Kennedy add these words: Those who practice these virtues will never fall. That is, they will obtain final salvation. The word fall refers here then to apostasy. Those who practice godly virtues will not turn decisively away from the gospel of Christ. In other words, final salvation is at stake in Peter's call to obedience. If you want final salvation, you better add all of those things. You don't add all of those things, you'll never fall. If you don't add all of those things, you can fall. If you fall... You're not saved. John Piper writes, the condition of final glorification is persevering in the same faith and hope. Now he says there's a condition for your final glorification. 
If there's a condition, what does that uh, seem to say? It's not by faith alone. That's Piper, the man who preaches justification, saying there's a condition for your final glorification. We typically try to argue that the condition of my final glorification is my justification. If he justifies me, he will glorify me. Nothing I have to do. Now what they will argue is God will persevere you. So if God saves you, he will persevere you, so all these things will be present and evident, and you're going to do the works because God's doing them through you. They're they're trying to get the responsibility off you. They're trying to put the responsibility on God, but they're still arguing that these things have to be present. So this, this. All right, so how is this person going to respond to this? Well, he goes on to say this. Of course, it's not only Calvinists who believe that perseverance is necessary for final salvation. Arminians, all right, and he names a a number of different Arminian groups, also see the necessity of endurance to escape eternal condemnation. Though Arminians say that everlasting life can be lost, and Calvinists do not, they agree on the necessary of perseverance in faith and good works until death. So some believe you can lose it, Others believe you can't lose it, but others believe if you don't persevere, you never had it. But both sides require what? Perseverance. You have to persevere. However, not all evangelical Christians hold that one must persevere to obtain final salvation. Oh, we got a new group in, right? So we got the Calvinists who believe you have to persevere. We have some Arminians who believe you have to persevere. And now we have a new group who believe you don't have to persevere. Ain't it so simple? Just so, so few views to deal with, right? He quotes someone, Contrary to the Arminian, we do not believe the warnings are given to raise concerns about forfeiture, forfeiture of one's eternal destiny. Contrary to the Calvinist, they are not the means by which professing believers are to be motivated to to examine to see if they are truly regenerate. Nor are they intended to motivate true Christians to persevere by causing them to wonder if they're really saved. God has more sufficient means than fear of hell to motivate his children. Rather, the warnings are real. They are alarms about the possibility of the forfeiture of our eternal rewards and of learning at the judgment seat that our lives have been wasted. All right? This view comes along and says, wait a minute. The Bible does say you need to persevere. But it's not arguing that you have to persevere in order to be saved. They're like, that's just a ridiculous thing for God to say, hey, if you don't, pers- you know, you better be worried about your perseverance because if you don't, if you don't persevere, you're going to go to hell. He's like, no, no, God would not motivate us that way. It's about what? You better persevere in regards to rewards you will either gain or rewards you will lose. All right? That works pretty good, right? What does this resolve? Okay. Okay, this resolves the problem because it would seem you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And what's the only thing at stake here? Is reward, not your salvation. It sounds good, does it not? Now remember, what's required to get here? 
No, you, no perseverance would not be required for this view. Okay. Only, the only thing reason you would need to persevere is to get a reward, not, to, not for heaven. You have to have more than one judgment. That's what's required for this to work. You have to have more than one judgment. Everybody got that? You have to have more than one. So far, so good? It sounds good, doesn't it? Yes? So, make sure we step back. This author is arguing that the Bible claims we have to persevere. Everybody got that? They are arguing everyone agrees that you have to persevere. You've got those who argue you have to persevere, and if you don't persevere, you are never saved. Others argue you have to persevere, and if you don't persevere, you lose your salvation. Right? Those sides will never agree. Right? Who are some people who believe you can lose your salvation? Church Christ. Okay. Nazarenes. Charismatics, like Assemblies of God, Pentecostals, Lutherans. Okay. A lot of people believe you can lose your salvation. Baptists believe you can't. Right? So the Baptists fall into a, a lot of... Now, there's no, there is not a consensus Baptist doctrine other than you can, that uh, they, we sometimes refer to as once saved, always saved. Reformed people say, no, not once saved, always saved. Perseverance of the saints, arguing if you don't persevere, you were never saved. Right? But what's still required? Perseverance. Now, the, what does perseverance mean? Well, inevitably, perseverance is not just I continued believing. Perseverance is my life demonstrated my salvation by my... Perseverance almost always involves works. All right? This view comes along and says, yeah, fine, perseverance, add all the works you want. It's wonderful. It's great. You should care about persevering. You should care about works. But it has nothing to do with your salvation because Jesus took care of your salvation. That sounds good. Let's, let's see where they go. We'll go on. As believers, our home with Christ in heaven is secure. But our, our position of service in Christ in the millennium depends on whether we endure hardships patiently and faithfully or whether we deny him by falling, uh, failing to undergo difficulties with patience and loyalty to him. Now stop right there. Wait a minute. That requires a belief in the millennial kingdom. Not all Christians believe in a millennial kingdom. But, so, that's okay. The, the, the main argument here is your salvation is eternally secure, and this is just going to determine reward. Right? So far, so good. Let's now consider what the Bible says. Now, please note, every side is going to say, let's consider what the Bible says. Okay? <laughs> every side is going to say that. Okay? All right. Here we go. This is the heading. You may want to write this down. Proof that perseverance is the condition for rewards and not salvation. Proof that perseverance is the condition for rewards and not what they refer to as final salvation. All right? This is going to be the proof. Does everybody understand this position? All right? What is this view telling us? Make sure we understand. Is this view denying that we're judged according to our works? Yes and no. It is arguing that we as believers will not be judged according to our works on the basis of our salvation. But we will be judged according to our works on the basis 
of reward. Are they denying that we have to persevere to the end? Yes and no. They are denying that you don't have to persevere to the end in order to be saved. You do have to persevere in the, uh, to the end in order to receive a reward. The other sides argue you have to persevere in the end in order to be saved. Well, both, I mean, whether you're the Arminian or the Reformed kind, you believe that. All right? They're going to offer proof. Are you ready? All right. The perseverance, free promises, and John's gospel. Now, stop right here. I already have a problem with this approach. What's the problem with this approach? Let me read that heading again. The perseverance, free promises, and John's gospel. What's the problem with this approach? Let me read that heading again. The perseverance, free promises, and John's gospel. What's the problem with this approach? No, perseverance free. In other words, it's not dependent on your salvation. But that's not the problem here. The problem is, he's going to look for this proof where? In John's gospel. Ignoring. There we go. Remember, we were going to look for the first problem? Right? He's just going to focus on John's gospel. Well, sounds good, right? I can prove all kinds of things with John's gospel. If I just reduce my search to John's gospel, I could prove all kinds of things. Right? If I just reduce my, my search to Ephesians, I can probably say we're saved by grace alone through faith alone and not have to worry about it. If I go to other books, I'm going to hear, well, I've got to be judged according to my work. So how does this work? Let's see what they do here. Right? They say that uh, the gospel of John is sometimes referred to as the gospel of belief. Since the Greek word for I believe occurs more times in this book than in any other New Testament book. Oh, isn't that interesting? You're going to go to the book that uses the phrase I believe more than any other book to make your argument that the only thing you need for salvation. <laughs> like if you don't see the fallacy in this approach, like you're, you're, you're easily deceived. Like immediately red flags should be going up. Okay, you're stacking that. I'm going to go to the book <laughs> that is kind to my position. Ooh, that, what, a, what a way to do theology. Hey, hey, you need to prove something. Just pick the book that works for you. Right? Yeah, that, that works great. All right. Um, Jesus said it is, it, that it is the one who believes in him that has eternal life. The one who believes will not perish. John chapter 3, verse 16. The person who believes will never hunger, will never thirst. John chapter 6, verse 35, and will never die. John chapter 11, verse 26. Right, immediately, they're stacking the deck, right? Jesus says, if you believe in him, you have eternal life. Where does he say this? In the Gospel of John. What book are they going to use to prove you don't need to persevere in the end in order to be saved? <laughs> the Gospel of John. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's, oh, okay, let's continue. The Lord also affirmed, he who hears my word and believes in the one who sent me shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. John chapter 5, verse 24. John three sixteen, for example, concerns 
Whoever believes in him, not whoever perseveres in him, clearly the one who simply believes in Jesus has eternal life. The New Testament is united on this point. All right. So what are they making as their foundation for their argument? What's their foundation for their entire argument? That the New Testament teaches what? What do you have to have for eternal salvation? Belief. That's the, that's the foundation for the whole argument. The New Testament argues all you need to do is believe and you have eternal life. So where, what, therefore, what are they immediately arguing is not required for eternal life? Perseverance or works. Sounds good. Doesn't it? it does sound good. It does. Exactly. He quotes 24. He doesn't bother to continue to quote in John, does he? Right? See, this, this, is called, this is called doing theology by picking the verses that work for you. In John chapter 5, remember John chapter 5 is probably one of the most clear statements on judgment according to works. You have Jesus himself. And in fact, let's look at it. John chapter 5, I'm glad you brought that up. It's literally just verses from where they stop quoting. Yep. John chapter 5. Verse 28, in the Gospel of John, mind you, right? Okay, Marvel, just as Jesus, now Jesus is speaking, I would argue he knows more about judgment than everyone in this room, right? And everyone writing this book, John chapter 5, verse 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth they that have done good, unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil on the resurrection of damnation. That's Jesus himself speaking. Now note how clever they are here. Note, note how they play the game. Watch. John 3.16, for example, whoever believes in him, not whoever perseveres in him. Oh, well, wow. Great. How about John 5? It says those who do good get eternal life and those who do bad get eternal damnation. He, he picks the verse that works for him. Right? Not once. Now listen carefully to this statement. Um, in my copy, this has been highlighted 45 times. So people who buy this book really like this statement. All right? Let's see what it says. Everybody ready? Not once in John... Does Jesus ever say that one must persevere in order to obtain or retain eternal life? All right. He may not say one has to persevere, but he seems to indicate in John chapter 5. <laughs> now again, here, here's the problem. See, when I was a young Christian... Like when I was a young Christian, I would buy this book, right? And I would think, okay, this works. Because I wouldn't have the capability necessarily of figuring it out. Now, the more you know the Bible, the more you go, wait a minute, man, come on. That's a completely misleading statement. Yeah, you're right. Jesus didn't say you have to persevere. He just said you have to have good works. So, is this even really trying to honestly deal with the problem? 
Okay, let's just, be, let's just be blunt here. It's not trying to honestly deal with the problem. Now, we'll see. We'll just give this, this, because remember, these sections are not super long. We'll give this section and we'll give this author the benefit of the doubt that at some point he's going to come back and explain that. But that statement right there is misleading. That is extremely misleading. And when Christians mislead people in order to believe a doctrine, you should immediately begin to discount them Im- immediately. That is not being fair. You're right, Jesus never said one must persevere, but he did say one must have good works. So I would assume if you have to have good works, you'd have to do what in those good works? Persevere in your good works. <laughs> right, okay. All right. Rather, he promises eternal security the moment one believes. Now, he does seem to indicate that if you believe, you have eternal security. However, he also says... What what is this completely ignoring? The whole problem. The problem is, remember what's the statement I told everyone to write down? Justified by faith? This is not not trying to deal with the problem because it's ignoring the tension that exists even in the Gospel of John, which is all about believing. In the same book... The very same Jesus who says, believe and you have eternal life, tells you that the final judgment is going to be based on your works. Now, what could be their argument? That the people Jesus is talking about in John 5 doesn't include believers. Now, the only problem is, well, wait a minute. If it doesn't include believers, then who's doing the good works? Right? But that, that, that falls apart, okay? We're like, well, I mean, because then it would just, at that judgment, the only people who would be saved are people who do, there would be no one there doing good, right? Unless you have lost people who can be saved according to good works, which would be a problem. Let's see where else they go here, all right? Everybody ready? Everybody ready? Once a person drinks the water of life, believes in Jesus, he or she will never thirst. John chapter 4 Uh, Verse 14, John chapter 6, verse 35. No perseverance is required. Period. All right? Even the Samaritan woman understood Jesus to mean that a one-time drink would forever quench her thirst. The one who eats the bread of life, another figure for faith in Christ, shall never hunger. It's a simple point. Perseverance in faith or works as excluded... By such promises. Now, please note, they added works there. Everybody hear that? It is a simple point. Perseverance in faith or works is excluded by such promises. So according to them, the promises made in the Gospel of John in regards to salvation immediately excludes the need for what? Works. But in the very same book, the very same Jesus says, what is the basis of judgment? Works. How can you write that in a Christian book? You know how you can write that in a Christian book? Either nobody's going to check on you or what else? You don't care about truth. You care about truth? You can't write that. There's no way you can write that. I almost want to throw my Kindle across the church. That's completely a misrepresentation. 
and like you said, they stuck. They, they didn't even bother to quote four. What, how many verses down? Four verses down. And if they would have quoted four verses down, their entire argument would have been what disproven. All right, let's let's see where they go here. Remember, this is the biblical proof for their point. And how did they set up their whole argument to make their biblical proof? To only look in one book. And we've already demonstrated that in one book, we can already contradict what they are claiming. We find no statement from Jesus declaring that a believer must persevere uh, to retain eternal life or show evidence of it. Again, they're making, Jesus declares a believer, he, we find no statement? Well, if we find no statement, then why is Jesus saying we're going to be judged according to our works? Isn't that a statement? <laughs> I would say yes. Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. He then asked Martha, do you believe this? She replied in the affirmative. Jesus did not rebuke her and say, but what of your life? How do you know you will persevere? It is, not poss- is it not possible your faith is merely intellectual rather than pre- preserving faith? No, he accepted her profession. Now, man, Piper, MacArthur, pretty much uh, all the people in the reform camp would, would throw the book and say, heresy, antinomians, antinomians, they're all heretics. These are lost. This is easy believism. They would condemn this. Right, so they're already uh, not in the nor- in the world that we've operated in. They would already we would already be condemning them as easy believism. Right, I, my argument is not about easy believism. They're arguing. They're not answering the question. Why does Jesus say we're judged according to our works? Mind you, while these promises are decisive. They do not prove anything about the relationship between perseverance and rewards. They only say that in John's gospel, Jesus did not make perseverance a condition for eternal life. Again, he's telling us what John's gospel tells us. We've read in John's gospel that Jesus does make what the basis for the final judgment? Works. They go on, how could he? For John himself wrote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. All right. Okay, now they are going to give us a parable. Look at Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Verses 12 through... Oh, we're out of time. Okay. Luke chapter 9, verses 12 through 15. All right. Luke chapter 9, verses 12 through 15. We'll read this as quickly as we can. Everybody there? Make sure I'm in the right chapter. Yep. Okay. Uh, Luke chapter 9, or Luke chapter 9, 12 through 15. 9, yeah. Did I say uh, the wrong chapter? I did. No, okay, you're right. You guys are right. It is 19. It is right. I was in chapter 9 going, hey, wait, this will work. This will prove a point. It wouldn't be the point the book is trying to make. It'd be a point I wanted to make. All right, there we go. Luke chapter 19, starting verse 12. Everybody there now? After all the confusion I caused? Okay. 
He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a messenger after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, uh, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said, Likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man, Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest thou that thou didst not sow. Um, and, and I'm just going to read this entire. I'm going further than they did, but that's okay. And he said unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore uh, then gavest not thou my money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. He said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it unto him that hath ten pounds. And, and saith unto him, uh, and they and they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not every uh, have not even that he hath shall be taken away from him. All right, pretty serious parable. Correct. Now, immediately when they cite a parable, what should we all do? Say time out. Let's not build doctrines off parables. All right, so already I get nervous. Let's see what he says right here. Jesus then recounts the story of three of, the, of these servants, each of, of whom had received the same uh, sum of money and, be, and been told, do business till I come. The issue in this judgment, the issue in the judgment is productivity, not belief. Now that's true. The judgment he makes here has nothing to do with their belief. It's in productivity, right? But only the servant who turned his one pound into ten will uh, uh, hears, well done, good servant. He receives praise and is promised to rule over ten cities in the kingdom. Since only those who endure will reign with Christ, we can be sure this first servant endured. The second servant was half-hearted in his service. Though he could have produced ten, he only managed five. His half-hearted commitment leads to a lack of praise from his master, rather hearing, well done, good servant. He hears, you will also be over five cities. That, that is given authority to reign with Christ in the age to come, shows that he too endured, but clearly his effort was lacking. The third servant showed no profit and is given no cities to rule over. Rather than hearing good servant, he hears, uh, uh, rather, uh, rather than hearing good servant, he hears wicked servant. While some conclude that this servant represents an unbeliever, there are strong reasons for thinking otherwise. Now stop right here. Okay, this leads to an entire debate on how to interpret this parable. All right, now we're, now we're going to build a doctrine on a parable that no one's going to agree on how to interpret. Some are going to say two of them represent saved people. So if you're going to be saved, what do you need to do? 
persevere. When Jesus comes back, you better have something to show. If you don't, some will argue the last person is what? Lost. So how are you going to know you're saved? You're going to have something to show at the final judgment. Now, what view holds to that? That's the lordship view. Which requires what to be, what, what is required for salvation? Works. What are they going to probably argue right here? They're going to argue this has nothing to do with salvation. This has to do with reward. I will argue, using this passage to argue soteriological salvation to me is utterly foolish. And the reason I would argue that is because this is a parable. Parables trying to make a point. What what would we have to do here? Go back and read the broader context to know what is the point Jesus is trying to make. I'm telling you, it's not a doctrinal thesis on soteriology. It probably has something to do much more practical. So we'll have to stop right there. Okay, so summarize. What's the first view we're looking at? Okay, now so far they haven't even argued that there's more than one judgment, even proved there's more than one judgment. So far, what have they tried to argue? What's what's been the basis of their argument so far? They're trying to establish a foundation. And what is their foundation? That in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, believe and you'll be saved. Therefore, what is not required? Perseverance of works. However, what have they completely ignored in the Gospel of John? So, and then they go to a parable and Luke, right? Okay, which they immediately started off saying they were going to stay in John. Now they go to Luke and I don't know how they're going to, they're, they're going to try to use this as a basis of judgment. You cannot build a doctrine on judgment from this parable. It'd be horrible, horrible press to do so. All right, so where, where are we right now? Let's make sure. What can we walk away with after this Sunday of looking at all of this? All right, everybody ready? Here we go. Here's some things to write down. Number one, this is a Bible problem. You claim to be a Christian. What is your responsibility? To figure it out. It's not my problem. It's your problem, right? You own a Bible, does it not? What does the Bible teach? Justified by faith. What else does it teach? Judge according to works. Have people been trying to figure this out for 2,000 years? Yes. Is there a consensus on it? No. So then what do you have to do? You've got to figure out a consensus in your mind. You've got to figure it out. And is it, is it going to be simple? If it was so simple, would this first view be this convoluted? No. It would just say, here's three verses, problem solved. There's no three verses to solve it. There's no five verses to solve it. There's no 20 verses to solve it. In fact, they quoted a whole lot of verses, did they not? That they they conveniently did what? Leave out verses that seem to cause problems with their view, which is not the way you do this. You're going to need a comprehensive understanding of the subject. And so far, we're not getting it. We're not getting it. So number one, I want to make sure this is a biblical problem. This is a biblical problem. Number two, I want to make sure you realize, depending on what your view of salvation has been, like if you held to the lordship view, or if you hold you have to persevere to the end view, make sure you understand that 
whether you like it or not, you're requiring some kind of work. What's the only view that doesn't require works? Well, the view we're currently studying, what is that? what's another name for this view? Do what? That's what uh, lordship people would call it. What is another name for it? Free grace or easy believism? The free grace view, the easy believism view. They don't have that problem because they don't believe any works are necessary. Just belief is necessary. Almost everyone argues against that. People who believe you lose your salvation don't believe that. Reformed people don't believe that. Almost no, the, the free grace people are in a smaller group. Now, the free grace people sometimes contradict themselves, right? And the independent fundamental Baptist church, they are kind of like on the free grace side. Just believe in Jesus and you're saved, but then they turn around and say, here's 13 rules. If you don't follow these rules, we don't know if you're a Christian. Okay, well, that's... that's <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. Okay, if you believe in free grace, what does it mean? Believe in Jesus and what is required. Nothing. I will argue that may be the most true side to salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The reformed side who argues for the solas, they're not being genuine. Hey, you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. However, your works prove you're saved. Therefore, what do you have to have in order to be saved? Works. If you don't have works, you're not saved. Therefore, it's not faith alone. It's faith plus Works. I mean, you, there's, I mean, I don't care how you try to reword that. That's where you are stuck. So only one side is trying to be honest to the salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And I will agree that if we can, if we can get believers out of the other judgment and get us to a, re, um, a rewards judgment, that at least gets us closer to a solution. Right? That's at least the, mo- that's the most workable solution we can come up with because it would account for judgment according to works, it would account for salvation by faith. The only problem is, and when all these passages speak of a judgment according to works, you have some people it sounds like will go to heaven and some people will go to hell based off their works. Well, if we're not there, then who's going to heaven? Right? Okay, that's, that's going to be a problem we'll have to figure out. Now, because 1 Corinthians seems to argue that we don't need any works and we would still be saved. So we can't obviously be at the judgment Jesus just spoke of. So how do we, who's there? Now if we can find a way to identify who's there and make it make sense, we're at least, we're at least a whole lot further on. The, other, the reform side starts falling apart because, because they're trying to walk, they're trying to do this. They got one foot firmly rooted in Catholicism. And they got another root firmly rooted in the Reformation. Right? They want the works because they don't want to be an antinomian. They want the grace alone. And it's like, well, (laughs) you can't have it both ways. You can't. You can't. So we'll have to see. All right? But at least we've we've got a pretty good start. um, And we'll see. I don't know where that argument's going, but it it seems like it's really, it's not going, it's not going very, here's what we may do. We may take their argument and see if we can improve it. Okay, because right now they're not making a very good argument by denying what Jesus actually said. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. 
Lord, I pray that everyone will give this much thought this week, spend much time trying to figure out the truth, caring about it, studying it, meditating on it, looking up every verse they can find in the Bible in regards to judgment, because it's only until we study your word carefully can we have any certainty on what we are to do here. This is not a... This is not a a small doctrinal difference that two people can have and it's no big deal. This literally deals with our eternal destiny. I hope everyone here will take it seriously and I hope we can figure this out because our entire interpretation of Romans hinges on what we do with this very important subject and I pray that you can help us with that and that we can find the truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...